Bottom line is, to do tech policy well, the tech-leading democracies have to work together more just because technology is so diffused now and we share so many of the same problems, particularly when it comes to the China challenge in all this. We can be much more effective in safeguarding our economic and national security and promoting our economic competitiveness if we collaborate more effectively. The AIG Global Trade Series 2023 is a series of podcasts brought to you by AIG in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade. Visit www.aig.com forward slash GTS. The series moderator is Rem Kortovec of the Klingendahl Institute. Hello and welcome to this episode of the AIG Global Trade Series 2023. This is your host Rem Korteweg from the Klingendahl Institute and today's topic is really a fascinating one. It's semiconductors trade and high-tech cooperation. Now, as I'm sure you're all aware, so much is happening in the field of semiconductors. If there is one area that is facing a lot of international attention and on which political and economic pressures are being exerted, it is the semiconductor supply chain. It may sound like a cliche, but the continuous supply of ever more sophisticated semiconductors is absolutely essential to economic growth, technological development, and national security. And while concerns about the supply of chips emerged during the COVID pandemic as factories shut down and shortages emerged, Semiconductors have now also been thrust into the middle of a geopolitical competition, primarily between the US and China. What we see are export controls, billions of dollars made available through state subsidies, friend shoring, and new multilateral initiatives. These are characterizing the dynamics of producing semiconductors, which is arguably one of the most complex, technologically sophisticated, and globalized value chains out there. Now, two countries in particular stand out on this. That's Japan and the United States. And today, I'm really pleased to be able to talk about this with two great experts in the field. I want to talk about how these dynamics are shaping trade in semiconductors. And of course, our conversation today takes place in the context of the October 7 U.S. export control regime, as well as the Japanese and Dutch counterparts, which have only been agreed recently and effectively have made it more difficult for Chinese companies to access the most advanced semiconductor technologies. We will look at U.S. and Japanese export control regimes, how international cooperation is changing these supply chains, and what role trade and trade policy can play. So over to our experts. Firstly, from Tokyo, I'm joined by Yasu Ota. Yasu is a Tokyo-based columnist and TV news commentator for Nikkei. He has a journalistic career spanning more than 30 years with postings in Washington, D.C., Frankfurt, and most recently Singapore. He covers foreign affairs, international trade, and geopolitics, and has a background working on the Japanese semiconductor sector as well. He also writes regularly for the Nikkei Asian Review. And then from Washington, D.C., I'm joined by Martijn Russer. Martijn is the managing director of Datena, a data-driven economic intelligence provider and technology company. And in Washington, D.C., he leads the company's U.S. operations. He is also a former senior fellow and director of the Technology and National Security Program 
at the Center for a New American Security, CNAS, and he has a background as a U.S. intelligence analyst working on emerging technologies and technology innovation. A very warm welcome to you both from Tokyo and Washington. Let's start with the basics. Yasu, over the past couple of months, what has struck you most in terms of changes or dynamics impacting the semiconductor sector? I think that when the G7 summit was held in, in May in Hiroshima, I was surprised by the fact that the CEOs of semiconductor industry from all over the world, Intel, TSMC, Samsung, ASML, all CEOs gathered in Tokyo and visited the prime minister's office. And they have announced their intentions to invest more in Japan. And the prime minister, Kishida, asked them to invest more. And they promised to invest more in Japan. So I, I wondered why Japan is in focus. You know, Japan, there was a golden age 30 years ago. And Japan was, uh, you know, the, the top producer, uh, company of, of the country in, in the world of semiconductor. But now all the, the industry has deteriorated. It's being quiet. But in all sudden, uh, it became on the surface. And uh, that is the, the biggest news I heard recently, yeah. And is that really a policy of high-tech reindustrialization in, t- in Japan that we see developing? Or does this fit into a, a broader strategy of the Japanese government? Well, I think we're going to talk about that later, but there's just the two elements. One is industrial policy, as you mentioned. So they want to revive the industry here. The second one is, of course, national security and somewhat industrial policy and the national security policy is merged into the one stream. And uh, then the semiconductor becomes recognized as uh, the strategic uh, material. So naturally, they focus on the semiconductors, but the rationale of the, those policies, of course, national security. So, well. And Martin, we've all heard about, and I just mentioned it, sort of the U.S. to Japanese export control regimes. We also recently heard from the Dutch government, these new export control licensing requirements for semiconductor technologies. There are these big subsidy packages being thrown around by the United States, by the European Union, also by the Japanese government. Why are we seeing this emerge now? What's changed? And, and basically, how did, how did we get here? Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, you know, a few things happened all at once, right? I think well, first is the the broad realization of the fundamental importance of semiconductors to the modern economy. It's truly foundational to to so many of the capabilities that are that are key to economic growth, economic security, and, and national security. The other is. And this was in part prompted by the pandemic, this sense of geographic vulnerabilities, which in the case of semiconductors is is quite significant, particularly when you look at semiconductor fabrication, where where Taiwan is is pivotal. And with cross-strait tensions, I think policymakers were starting to think more deeply about what the implications of a Taiwan conflict would be particularly when it comes to semiconductors, the economic impact of any disruption in Taiwan's ability to produce semiconductors would, would be just devastating. And we're talking trillions of dollars of losses uh, across the global economy. And then finally, the big catalyst was 
the Biden administration coming in with a very different approach to technology policy and technology strategy. And I think of it as a, a three-legged stool. First leg, promote. Second leg, partner. Uh, third leg, protect. So in the promote end, you see policies such as the CHIPS Act, right? A, a new American industrial policy where you're trying to encourage companies in the semiconductor space to increase its its presence in the United States, uh, increase its production capacity with partnering, you know, working with countries like Japan, India, uh, countries in Europe to have more effective and collaborative semiconductor-related policies. And we saw that, for example, uh, with the Netherlands and Japan again. And finally, the protect agenda. And you already um, mentioned the October 7 export controls. And here, the willingness of Washington to constrain certain actors' access to to key technology areas from a national security perspective. And this, of course, uh, is very much focused on China, significantly not just limiting access to certain types of semiconductors, such as uh, GPUs, but semiconductor manufacturing equipment. But critically, and this is a, an important difference compared to the Dutch and Japanese policies, is also not allowing U.S. persons to contribute to semiconductor fabrication and the upkeep and maintenance of semiconductor manufacturing equipment within China. And that downstream has a huge impact because so much of the know-how that you need to build up your own capabilities comes from that type of tacit knowledge. It's interesting that you describe it as a, sort of a multi-pillared policy. On the one hand, the desire to reduce unwanted economic dependencies or to deal with with the question of economic resilience in light of potential shocks to to semiconductor supplies and at the same time the national security argument not to give technologies or make technologies available to potential adversaries how is that viewed in Japan is that also so the, the three the three prongs the protect partner and and promote agenda that Martin mentioned do you see that in in Japan's approach as well Yasu well, when the U.S. started this game, uh, actually it was in under the Mr. Trump's administration, when the U.S. government invited the TSMC to Arizona, it was a shock for the Japanese policymakers because they saw the U.S. as a rival. Because everybody knows that there is a technology only in Taiwan within the hand of TSMC. So the question is, who's going to get that technology to where? And Japan has been negotiating with Taiwan and TSMC to transfer their technology to Japan. And uh, in all sudden, the U.S. announced and TSMC announced to set up the new factory in Arizona. So uh, I thought the U.S. and Japan, of course, they are allied nations, so they, are, they have to be cooperation between them. But still, uh, there's a kind of competition to get better technology. So they insisted in domestic production. So the, what's important for Japanese government at the time is to have better technology than the U.S. have. So the, when the TSMC says they're going to transfer five nanometer technology, then the, the Japanese officials I interviewed said that there's a slight chance to win the U.S. if Japan get the two nano, three nano, you know. So it didn't happen actually, but it's very interesting. It's a cooperation, and allied, but still their competition. So it's a very unique situation, I thought. Yeah. 
That seems to be also the story in the Dutch context or in the European context, where there is a willingness to really cooperate with the United States on setting up so-called secure supply chains, also with respect to semiconductors. But there's also this realization, well, hang on, there's an industrial competitiveness component there as well. From your vantage point, Martijn, is that, do you think that this is leading to perhaps the risk of regionalization in these supply chains that say there is a willingness to invest in semiconductor supply chains of your own, but try to avoid having too much exposure to the other because also you don't want to, I don't know how to phrase it, but to give a competitive advantage to, even though it's an ally to a potential economic competitor? Well, I think overall what we're seeing is a move towards greater resilience, right? There are very concerted efforts to look at uh, diversification in fabrication capacity, but it, it goes much broader, right? There was just an announcement by the uh, Spanish government that there will likely be a new advanced packaging facility being created. And that's an important development because so much of the packaging is concentrated in Southeast Asia, um, which we've been very much focused on chip fabrication, but the whole value chain is is much broader than that. And ultimately, there, there will remain certain interdependencies. Those won't go away just because it, you cannot be self-sufficient in semiconductors. No single country can do everything. And so that's actually a healthy thing when those interdependencies are within the tech-leading democracies. So countries such as the United States and Japan, Germany and the Netherlands and the UK, where that then forces better collaboration on these issues. There will be healthy competition between the various companies in those countries, but that's that's a good thing that you want to keep pushing on innovation. So ultimately, I see what, what is taking place now where you have this regionalization, as you call it. I see that as being very healthy. It adds more resilience and dynamism into the industry as a whole. And ultimately, from an economic security, national security standpoint, this is very much in in the interest of the allies. And Yasu, can you bring us up to speed on one of the, I think, more interesting, or perhaps at least in dollar terms, one of the largest areas of collaboration between the US and Japan, which is the IBM Rapidus Agreement? And I, I'm sure some of our listeners have heard of this, but perhaps you can tell us a little bit more about it. Okay. Rapidus is a new, newly formed, established company backed by the Japanese government and uh, some investors such as Toyota, MTT, a telecommunication giant, and SoftBank, the telecommunication a private companies. And it is a foundry business and they, are, they have a plan to produce mass production, start mass production in uh, 2024 using IBM's technology, which is uh, beyond two nanometers. It's the most difficult, I would say, the technology they have achieved. And only IBM has such a technology, two nanometer fabrication, that they don't have a facility to produce. IBM was looking for the buyer of the license. And I, I gathered Intel declined <laughs> and other makers, probably in Korea, didn't say yes. And, and they happened to be rapidest, but they established because um, 
there's uh, enthusiasm in Japan to revive the Japanese semiconductor industry. So the combination was made between the Rapidus and IBM. So what was going on now is the Rapidus sent a, a bunch of engineers to IBM in New York and uh, let them learn the new technology and bring them back to, to Hokkaido and start production in two years. So I, I think there's a clue. The new type of cooperation, it is uh, IBM's license, but they cannot produce it. And Japan is good at making things, right? So uh, Rapidus is not just a buyer of license. They are using the license, but they add some values on the license because, uh, you know, as in the process of developing the manufacturing technologies, it's a new knowledge, new experience that could be a new license and IPs. So can be the asset of the both countries, the U.S. and Japan. So in a sense, um, they cannot separate. I mean, U.S.-Japan combination through Rapidus and IBM would be the one case. I think um, the, the, the other uh, company might go after manufacturing, technology, and the development. Well, it seems to be a very concrete example of where how this new this new world in terms of semiconductor cooperation is also leading to new initiatives. I guess for you, Martin, because I, I think you have a pretty good grasp also on what the U.S. is doing in terms of developing its own indigenous supp- semiconductor supply chain. You mentioned the point about diversification, about building, strengthening economic resilience, but we all know that that's really difficult to do in such a complex global value chain like the semiconductor value chain. What are some of the challenges that you see the U.S. running into in terms of regionalizing this, to bring it to either North America or to to have a, 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 a significant market share of own domestic indigenously produced semiconductors? The biggest problem the United States has, and this is a problem shared by by all the allies, is uh, just a shortfall in, in talent, right? There simply aren't enough people that have the skills and the knowledge to be able to to work in this industry. And that is everywhere from design all the way to the, the tail end, the advanced packaging and the testing. What I've been calling for to help address this issue is a semiconductor alliance of sorts. So where you have the EU member states, the UK, Japan, South Korea, India, Canada, and the United States all working together on addressing these issues. I think manpower is should be top of that list, um, figuring out ways to, to pool resources so that we can help each other to a certain degree. But then if you think more broadly, think about the potential for collaborative R&D efforts in new designs and new materials for semiconductors, thinking about coordinating policies on new fab so that you don't have too much of one type of manufacturing capacity versus another. And then, of course, addressing the the shortfall in raw materials in some cases. There's a whole slew of things these countries can, can do together to have more effective approaches. I see that being necessary in semiconductors. But then if you start thinking more broadly, think about technology areas such as biotech, quantum computing, Perhaps it could extend even farther into uh, much more broad areas such as artificial intelligence and machine learning. Bottom line is to do tech policy well, 
the tech-leading democracies have to work together more just because technology is so diffused now and we share so many of the same problems, particularly when it comes to the China challenge in all this. Each individual country can take some measures, but we can be much more effective in safeguarding our economic and national security and promoting our economic competitiveness if we collaborate more effectively. Do you see the G7 that uh, Yasu mentioned at the beginning as the G7 meeting in, in, in Japan as having them taken useful steps in this regard or shouldn't, should it go much further? Well, it's a step in the right direction, but you're missing key countries, right? The Netherlands, if you're talking semiconductors, is critically important. Taiwan, of course, is hugely important. India, Israel, all these countries have very important role to play in the global semiconductor ecosystem. So the G7, yes, is a good start, but I would suggest that we need to to think bigger because the G7 alone cannot pull it off. Yeah, well, like Matai says, it's an alliance and G7 cooperation is quite important there, stepping in the good direction. But my concern is that if government intervention becomes a constant, it will inevitably make uh, it harder for market to work. I think it might kill the market function. I think that is a big risk in the global economy. So we have to make the balance between the government intervention and to keep the market functional. So uh, we need such a discussion deeper. So with cooperation, yes, agreed. And they are heading for the same direction and to have a collaborative power against China. That's fine, but it might end up with being a, a malfunctional market. So that's my concern. Yeah, and that I mean, I think that is a, a genuine concern. Also, when you when you add up all the ambitions of the various chips acts or chips initiatives that are out there, that there is a risk of a certain oversupply emerging, or even an undersupply in particular types of chips. I guess I mean, Martin, you. Just riffing off of your suggestion to have a, a, a more structured conversation between the key players in the semiconductor supply chain. Is that one of the tasks that you that you would see them also tackling to avoid that that undersupply or oversupply? In part. Um, you know, again, I'm a strong proponent of competition, right? So on the one hand, you have uh, with the US and Japan, the Rapidus initiative, which Secretary Raimondo expressed her strong support for. I think that's fantastic. At the same time, I want Tokyo Electron and Nikon to compete very hard with their US competitors uh, to make sure that they fight for every bit of market share that they can. You can do both at the same time. I'm not suggesting that you know governments determine how big of a slice of the pie each company has and so forth. What I am suggesting is that, well, the simple reality is companies will not always act in the national interest, right? They're, they are acting in their interest, the interest of their shareholders. That doesn't always align with broader national security needs. And Governments need to step in every now and then and, and nudge companies in, in a direction to do things they otherwise would not. And that's why you know, I'm looking at these issues through that three-legged stool construct, right? Where ultimately 
you can't take just the export controls in isolation. They're part of the much larger picture. And when you look at everything interacting in concert, then you have a much more coherent approach to tech policy. That should be where government is playing, just essentially laying out, okay, generally speaking, here are our long-term goals. So greater geographic diversity in the supply chain, greater resilience by ensuring that there is capacity to make up for a loss if, say, in the event of a conflict that we lose access to certain fabs. Uh, those are the types of broader policies that I'm thinking about. But no, I'm with Yasu. I'm all for a healthy competition. That is what has made the Dutch, the, the Japanese, and the U.S. economies as strong as they are today. And we should absolutely continue forward with that. So, And if you're, if you're a policymaker in Beijing and you're listening to our conversation, you will get the impression that a lot of these measures are, uh, and I think we've even said so, are directed at either restricting Chinese access to the most sophisticated semiconductors or even directed at, at the potential consequences should, uh, should of adversarial Chinese foreign policy. What do you expect China to do in response? So all these export controls that the Japanese, the Dutch, the Americans, and others have put in place effectively make it more difficult for China to access these, these high-end technologies. What do we anticipate the, the Chinese reaction to be? Yeah, if I were in China's government shoot, it's easy. You know, when the government decides where the investments should be made and uh, what kind of production they should go for, it's just uh, you can simply direct give the direction to the, the companies so that they start working for that plan. Well, looking at what's happening in, in, in China after the strict export control was introduced in October and Japan and the Netherlands followed in March, while we're focusing on uh, top-notch technology such as three nanos, two nanos, I understand the Ch Chinese government is smart enough to change the course a little bit from the high-tech to the legacy sectors, which is uh, one generation or two generation old. But the biggest demand is there. So they make the huge investment in the legacy sectors and they will start producing maybe in, in, in two years. So what's going to happen next is uh, some mass disruption of the, the market in the legacy field where the, the biggest demand exists for EVs, autos, and uh, data processing use. So what's going to happen is that reminds me what happened in the past in uh, steel industry or the flat panel. So uh, we got to be careful. I mean, we just tend to focus on the, the top technology, but China may be thinking something different. So that's my uh, observation mm -hmm. from Tokyo. What do you think, Martin? Well, yeah, I agree with Yasu that the potential for for Chinese companies to dominate uh, the legacy chip sector is a distinct possibility, right? And if you look at past Chinese industrial policies, yeah, I think there's um, a strong foundation for, for Chinese firms to be able to do that. And that's absolutely something that Washington and Tokyo and, and Brussels should be cognizant of and think about. You know, more broadly, the reaction in Beijing, right, very predictable, doubling down on existing industrial policies, 
We're seeing an increase in technology theft by Chinese entities. And of course, the threat of export controls by Beijing on on key inputs, raw materials, rare earths, and other critical minerals. Yeah, yeah. Talk to us a little bit about that, about how you rank the recent announcement of the gallium and, and germanium export licensing requirements. Yeah, I, I think ultimately the reaction was uh, was a little overhyped to that, right? Yes, these are important materials for certain advanced semiconductors, some niche semiconductors. But at the same time, China will not cut off other countries completely because China needs those chips as well. And so I think the worst case scenario right now would be that it drives up the price for these types of chipsets. But uh, you know, TSMC has come out and said that they don't see material impact to their production capabilities. Ultimately, I think it was a pretty weak hand for Beijing to play. And it seemed to be timed specifically to the announcement by the Dutch government of the new export controls. But ultimately, there's a lot more bark than bite when it comes to the potential impact. If anything, it just underscores the need to diversify supply chains for critical minerals, right? That was already happening for the rare earths. There's already a lot of talk, uh, particularly in Europe, about diversifying the supply chains for gallium and germanium. So I think Beijing just you know, proved the point that a lot of people have been saying that they're not a, a reliable interlocutor when it comes to these types of things. So unlike the U.S., Japanese, and Dutch export controls, which are very tailored and very targeted to specific capabilities with national security impacts of specific military technologies, Beijing counters with just an across the board, we're going to cut you off. And that doesn't help their cause for people that are arguing against the more hawkish positions that uh, a lot of people in Washington have taken. They just prove their point, basically. So I I think that was um, a misjudgment by Beijing to cite that as a response to uh, the Hague's announcement. Yeah, and it's good to underline this point also for our listeners that while we're talking about these super, super advanced technologically, very savvy, almost wizardry-like machines where diversification is taking place and investment is happening, a similar amount of investment and diversification is taking place in something much more down-to-earth literally, namely how to extract and how to process and refine the critical metals that are needed to produce these very advanced machines. I guess a question for you, Yasuo, is also how Japan has looked at these Chinese countermeasures, if that's what we can call them, but also to what extent this is going to determine the relationship between China and the U.S., but by extension also other developed Western economies in terms of are we going to see tit-for-tat measures being put in place in this high-tech field? or And if so, where does that lead us? Oh, that's a difficult question. Well, when it comes to gallium, I think the, the China holds the, the more than 92% of production, the market share, and followed by Russia, those two difficult countries. And looking at the demand side, the gallium market, Japan accounts for 45% of the market by country, which means most of the semiconductor wafers using uh, gallium are currently produced in, in Japan. 
and Japan provide the wafers to Germany or the U.S. and other Japanese companies, so that the wafer, wafer itself is being produced by Japanese company here. So the, in in a sense, China is, is targeting Japan. I mean, by uh, squeezing the supply of uh, gallium and germanium, Japan will be uh, in a difficult position, and eventually it will lead to the German production, the U.S. production. So it, it's a signal from Beijing, right? So uh, they have such a weapon. And uh, the question, I, I don't really think they're going to use it, you know, frequently, uh, but they show that they have a card in their hand. So the question is, what leverage we have? I mean, Japan doesn't have a single effective uh, mean to negotiate with China because they have the source. And Japan desperately needs a source to produce uh, the weapon. So uh, I think the G7 and New Zealand, Taiwan has to unite and uh, find some strong enough leverage against China. But the big question is is how and what it is. Well, I think the way everybody, people has to discuss on that leverage. What kind of leverage we have? And what do you see, Martin? Do you see the potential for a tit-for-tat back and forth measures related to semiconductor production emerging between, say, the West and China? Well, in the semiconductor space, Beijing has very little leverage. You know, if you compare the technical capabilities that Beijing, or I should say Chinese firms possess versus Western firms, there's not much there. The The question, I think, becomes more interesting when we look at you know just economic relations as a whole, right? And there, yes, there's a lot that decision makers in Beijing could conceive of that could have more impact. I think in particular, what I'm um, concerned about is uh, growing harassment of foreign firms inside China. We've already seen raids on offices of specific companies, um, foreign business executives that are being detained uh, for no reason. Uh, There's a lot that the authorities in China could do to increase the pressure on certain companies. A lot of foreign firms still want access to the Chinese domestic market, and you know the the cost of doing business in China goes up every day. That squeeze, I think, is uh, probably the best near term leverage that the CCP has at the moment. I'm very concerned about a deterioration of the uh, business environment for foreign firms in China, whether it's high tech or just run of the mill commodity products to include apparel. Uh, but staying with high tech for a second, do you already see indications that, um, say, Western companies are, are diversifying away from production in China? That they are, say, cutting cutting China out of their their value chain? Yeah, we're starting to see the beginnings of that. Even a company like Apple that has a tremendous presence in China, or Chinese firms are are integral to products such as uh, the the iPhone. Yeah, there's there's some diversification starting to happen now, but it, again, this isn't an overnight process. This is going to take many years. It's extremely expensive, extremely complex, which is one of the reasons why companies were hesitant to do this. But now the geopolitical situation has changed such that, yes, this is a, a sensible long-term business decision. In semiconductors in particular, I think the, um, the Korean... Uh, memory chip producers uh, are going to scale down their exposure significantly just because of 
the uh, the impact of the export controls long term. You know, at least for for U.S. firms, the fact that U.S. persons cannot work in the industry in a lot of cases, you know, will mean a, a pretty rapid shift. It'll take a little longer, probably for European and and Japanese firms, but. Ultimately, a lot of the business risks um, that have resulted primarily through Beijing's own actions is waking boardrooms up to the fact that uh, the old way of doing business is not viable anymore in the future is increasingly murky, such that diversification is in any company's long-term financial interest. Yeah, and the 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 word of the month in in Europe these days is 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 de-risking from 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 China uh, through diversification. Is that also playing in a Japanese context? I remember a couple of years ago that the Japanese government put out a kind of a subsidy package trying to persuade uh, Japanese companies to bring back production from China to to Japan. wasn't entirely successful. How how is that being viewed now? Well, actually, it was not quite successful because the uh, Japanese government, government is quite poor. I mean, they are in a trade, in a fiscal deficit, and they cannot keep spending money on a specific industry. Uh, so, uh, and the company knows it, and the company know that the Japanese government, what the Japanese government can do and cannot. So, the, the initial movement is okay. I mean, you can get money from the government, you can bring a, com- a factory back to, to Japan from China. But after that, you know, who's going to support that the operation here? It's, it's quite costly. So there is many, I know the many Japanese companies is trying to escape from China and looking for the new place to settle down. And uh, in, in most of the cases, they go to Vietnam, Malaysia, and the Singapore government is quite clever. They just catch the companies in from, from China. So looking at the investment in, in Singapore recently, and so many companies making the new factories and data centers in, in Singapore, semiconductors too. So it's very interesting. The ASEAN country is very sensitive. You know, they know what's going on between the US, Japan, and the US. And they are trying to find the best way for them to for their own interest. So I, th- I think the supply chain is now, people are trying to reconstruct the supply chain. So, uh, But I don't really think that you can cut the China totally off of the supply chain. It takes time. As uh, Martin said, it takes maybe two, th- like an iPhone. So they cannot stop the production. So most of the production is, they produced by Honghai in a Chinese factory, I think. And uh, the, I, I heard that the Honghai has a quite friendly relationship with the Chinese government. And uh, the Taiwan uh, administration wants Honghai to have more factories in Taiwan. And hopefully in Japan. And the Japanese government is working on that to invite Honghai to come to Japan. But I think it's quite difficult for the government to say, you go here, okay, you, you cannot go there. You cannot direct uh, the companies, what to do. It's a quite complex game in East Asia, ASEAN, Japan, Taiwan, and China. So, yeah, very good. And, and, and also, it's good to note that we have a one of our podcasts is dedicated specifically to ASEAN's role in, 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 glo- in changing global trade relations. That actually leads me to, to, unfortunately, already the final question, which is 
the role that trade policy can play in this. I mean, we've talked a lot about export controls, about subsidy packages, about industrial policy. But where does trade come in, and trade policy particularly? And I don't know who of you has has sort of clever thoughts on this. I mean, looking at the U.S. trade debate, Martin, in all honesty, also drawing on some of the things that some of our previous speakers have have pointed out, is that the U.S. seems to be more in the business of of industrial policy rather than trade policy. So may, maybe that's also where that that lies. But I, what do you think? I agree. I think. Probably the uh, the biggest deficit in, in U.S. foreign policy right now is the fact that it does not have a strategy for trade, and I think that's particularly problematic in the Indo-Pacific. This is an area where Beijing, in a lot of ways, has the upper hand, and it's, uh, it's a big vulnerability for the U.S. standing, U.S. credibility, as I mentioned, especially in the Indo-Pacific, but it's also a problem in the, in the transatlantic relationship as well. I'd love to see the Washington do a lot better on this front. So I agree with the prior guests on on your podcast that the U.S. doesn't have an effective trade policy at all right now, and it's a big problem. And Yasu, in in terms of, uh, I mean, the EU and 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 Japan have a very very good trade relationship in the sense that there is an EPA there. But to what extent do you see really trade in high tech goods? play a role in, uh, in, in, in this? Or where do you think the Japanese government could make, could make new strides when it comes to trade policy? They don't have a clear scenario yet. But my guess is there will be a two layers in the, the international trade. One is uh, strategic, strategic material, including uh, raw materials and semiconductors, such as things. And the other is, is common materials and uh, products. In uh, the top layer, the high-tech layers, the export control and the government control will be uh, more important than the, the free trade. But in the volume zone, the free trade is intact. But I, believe, I think that the, the free trade principle itself has ended. I mean, and of course, globalization will continue and then we cannot, nobody can stop the globalization but the globalism as ism is over. So the world is no longer so simple as, as to say that the more we liberalize trade, the richer we will be. No, I, I don't really think so. So the national security, national security is, is, is naturally more important than anything else. So the strategic good, such as the semiconductor, needs to be produced within the border. Of, of your own country, uh, where they can be protected by uh, the force of your uh, country's law and the military power. So this trend, we cannot. I don't think I can. We can t- stop this trend. The change f- from the globalism to the national securityism. So the uh, I think traditional uh, trade policy uh, doesn't really work anymore. Yeah. I think that's that may be a depressing, but a probably a good and accurate note to end on. Namely, that that period of free trade or free trade as such may 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 have moved on, particularly when it comes to strategic goods like semiconductors, and that in the context of producing semiconductors and other strategic technologies, 
It's much more about economic security and economic resilience rather than trade policy per se. And that is an accurate reflection of the conversation we just had. But I'm still reluctant to say there's a period. And I don't really want to say this is the end of free trade. But uh, looking at the reality, well, what can I say? No, that's true. That's true. And, and it's something that we don't only see in semiconductors, but I think that semiconductors is a sector or a product where you really see the geopolitics impact and, and, and interfere and even dominate trade as, as, as such. And it is really unique, I think, also to that set of technologies. But those technologies happen to be absolutely critical to the way our societies function. And so it, it, it has a deep impact. Unfortunately, this is all we have time for today. And I want to thank both of you, uh, Martin Rosser and y- Yasu Ota, very much for your time, for talking to me today and sharing your insights. And if you're interested in this and some of the other conversations that I've had for the AIG Global Trade Series, please access our podcasts at www.aig.com slash GTS or simply get them on the platform you usually use to access your podcasts. The AIG Global Trade Series 2023 is an international partnership between AIG, the Aspen Institute, Germany, SEPRI, the Brazilian Center for International Relations, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown University Law Center, ISPI, the Italian Institute for International Political Studies, the Jacques Delors Institute, Rieti, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, and the St. Gallen Endowment for Prosperity Through Trade. To access articles and opinion pieces from partners in the Global Trade Series and to listen to more episodes on global trade, visit www.aig.com forward slash GTS or follow the AIG Global Trade Series wherever you get your podcasts.